start a new series this morning that I have been, I've been thinking about for months on union with Christ. Now, the, the title varies a little bit, different posters and the internet and uh, sometimes my notes, but the idea is the same. Understanding union with Christ and why it isn't just religious pretending. Understanding union with Christ and why it isn't just religious pretending. Started off thinking about that concept. We are one with Christ, the Bible says. Christ in you. We'll read that. The hope of glory. Paul's favorite term for describing Christian people is to say they are people who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Christ in you. Believers are in Christ Jesus. And we read and read and read and read those types of sayings. And what do they mean? There are only so many options. Do they mean that physically Jesus Christ lives inside of of my skin, just the way my own organs and bones, they're inside my skin, and so there's another physical person. There's two of us inside my skin, sharing space. Well, it can't be a physical thing. We, We know that by now. Does it mean we live as though Christ were in us? So, so it's, it's a, I mean, we're sincere, but it's kind of a form of make-believe. We, we pretend we carry him around in our pocket because we're less likely to be bad if we think of him as being really close. Is that what it means? And now... You don't want to say anything out loud, but a lot of you are thinking, well, um, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's something like that. If he's not physically there, he's we 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 act like he's there. Now I don't think that goes far enough either. It's not an easy concept to get our brains around. And we'll be probably five weeks. Studying this on Sunday mornings, I want to start this morning with Colossians 1, 24 to 29. Colossians 1, 24 to 29. I have that on two slides. You can follow along. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions... For the sake of his body, that is, the church. That's a strange phrase. What could possibly be lacking in Christ's suffering? Don't they really atone for our sins? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. What Paul is completing isn't the atoning effect of Christ's death. What Paul is completing is there's a whole world out there that doesn't know how precious Jesus Christ is. And when they see me suffering for the gospel, they see something current, contemporary, that shows how precious the atonement of Christ's suffering on the cross is to me. And that has a, an enlightening effect. 
I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. You got a problem? Keep going like you're scrounging around like by my shoes. Is it not working? This is Derek. Say hi, Derek. Well, I'm glad you told me that because there's nothing worse than me working away up here and they're going, what's that fool doing up there? We can't see anything. That... Give me a thumbs up or a shout or a yell or something if this is good, okay? Good morning. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Back to square one. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I talked about that. For the sake of his body, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. I sure hope I'm not doing this for nothing. Is it doing it up there? (laughs) To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. So there's a... Here, now we're going to try. Do you see that? Okay. Okay. What is that mystery? There's something that's different. Something is different since Christ has come and died on the cross, ascended. His spirit has come. And he says, there's something that would never have been understood before the full revelation of what we have received, the church. He's just been talking about the church. Which is, look at this now. Christ in you. There's the topic, right? The hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature, look at this, in Christ. See it here? And then here. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit, come to your church. Here we are this rainy Sunday morning, so many hundreds of us, and this is not a concept that easily filters through our material world. And I just pray that you'll come and make it live to us. Let this truth be as transforming as I hope I can make it. Let it change our lives. If you really think that can happen, say the amen. All right. Some misunderstandings of the Christian faith are minor in detail. Not that any truth is insignificant, but some errors are of such a nature that 
nothing of the core of the Christian faith is really damaged very much. People have had strange and conflicting ideas about angels and demons and the millennium for as long as these ideas have existed and probably always will. Some misunderstanding, misunderstandings are fatal. I don't mean they're always perceived as being fatal to spiritual life. I mean, the fact that these major distortions of truth even exist proves that people aren't always aware of their importance. But every once in a while I talk to someone and there'll be disagreement about something that isn't minor, that's major. Sometimes talk about the Trinity. And, and it's, it's hard to make people see that there are some things you can't, you can't uh, be in error on and still be talking about Christianity anymore. In other words, there are some, there are some errors that once you make... You're talking about a different religion, even if you still use Christian terminology. It's a different religion. Even though they still use the church lingo. Some errors are massive. This is a series of teachings on union with Christ. You'll see a lot of texts... The one I chose to open with is important for two reasons. First, it's important because Paul repeats the idea of union with Christ, and he does so, and I'll explain this, he does so from both ends of the doctrine. What I mean by that is he writes both of Christ in us, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that's in our text, and he writes about our being in Christ, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Christ in you, you in Christ. So the emphasis from both ends is on, this, is on this permeating kind of union. Christ is in us. We are in Christ. And whatever Paul means by those terms, we haven't analyzed it yet. But he clearly means this is the way we are benefited by the life and death of God the Son. Everything seems to hinge on union with Christ. Not just belief in Christ. Union with Christ. I said the opening text was important for two reasons. One, the way it approaches that doctrine of union with Christ from both ends. Christ in you, you in Christ. And second, that opening text is important and should be important to us because in it, Paul underscores his point that it is only through Christ being in us that's the only truth that offers any kind of hope. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And clearly what Paul means to say is only this union with Christ's person, it's only that union that accomplishes anything 
hopeful for Don Horbin. For all of us who profess his name. And so, and so there's this distinction made between hope, hope coming from something Christ has done externally and maybe gives us, okay? There's a distinction made between that kind of hope and the hope that comes from our being in Christ Jesus, united in what he accomplished in his person. Let me, let me I want to back up and say that again in different words. Notice, hope doesn't reside in receiving something from Christ. We're going to spend weeks expanding on that key point because it's, it's one of those points where any misunderstanding actually starts to dismantle Christianity and turn it into another religion. But for now, just note that hope, and in particular, eternal hope, hope of glory, as described in the teaching of Paul, I'm going to show you in the teaching of Jesus, and the Apostle John, and the rest of the New Testament. It is amazing that this doesn't get talked about more. Hope resides in being one with Christ. The union is what brings the hope. We are without hope apart from union with Christ. Hope isn't found in any gift Christ gives externally from himself or any accomplishment of Christ that is just externally offered as information. He died on the cross for your sins. How do you think of Jesus forgiving you? Maybe you've been a Christian for 60 years. It's an obvious question. and People don't like responding to obvious questions. But humor me and put your hand up. How many have ever asked Jesus to forgive you for anything? Let me see your hand. This is a couple of you that are in deep trouble. Okay. What happened when you asked him? How, how do you perceive it? Do you perceive it like... Ron, come up here just for a sec. Okay, Ron's standing there. I'm standing here. And you asked me for this. Go ahead. There. So, so you, you come to Jesus. Can I, can I, have, can I have forgiveness? Right? And he, he hands it to you. Okay, give it back. You can sit down. <laughs> My point in that silly little thing is, that's all, it's all, it's, it's an external process, right? He asks for something. I give it to him. He's grateful. And he has received what I offered. Now, I want to surprise you, perhaps. That is miles removed from the New Testament's teaching about how you get forgiveness from Jesus. Miles removed. And it explains why all sorts of people separate asking Jesus to give them forgiveness 
and what they're going to do with the rest of their lives after he gives it to them. Ron just walks away and sits down. And there's people that do that. They take forgiveness from Jesus. I asked him. He gave it to me. Thank you. When I need it again, I'll come back and ask you for more. It's like, it's like my girls used to ask me for an allowance. And you give it to them. And then when they spend it, come back and you can get more. And you give it to them. But it's all an external... It's external from the person. What I want to say this morning... Forgiveness, like every other part of the Christian life... You get forgiveness by being in Christ. And I want to show you that that's exactly what the Bible says... Over and over and over and over again. And what that does is... It, 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 it puts me in a place where I'm forgiven for my sins as part of my union with Christ in which, in which I walk in his righteousness, think with his mind. I think Jesus said it once, didn't he? If you abide in me like a branch in a vine, picture forgiveness going up the vine, Okay? Forgiveness going up the vine, flowing into the branch. You cut the branch off, make it separate from the vine. Can it get forgiveness from the vine? This union with Christ, and I know I haven't explained it yet, it is so important that the New Testament doesn't even know how ...to speak of Christianity apart from it. And yet the church rarely talks about it. Paul alone uses these union expressions... ...in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord, in Him. He uses those expressions just in his letters... ...164 times. Contrast that with the number of times it talks about receiving Christ... ...which is used... Vaguely, but I'm, I'm being generous, twice in the New Testament. And the term accepting Christ, which is never used once anywhere in the scriptures. And yet union with Christ, oneness with Christ, being in Christ, it receives much less mention in the church than other subjects describing how Christ's effects change in believers. Point number one. If you're a visitor, you may be shocked that it took that long. If you attend here all the time, to go, oh, here he goes again. Point number one. The New Testament never treats the benefits of salvation as external gifts from Jesus Christ. And I want to do a real fast survey. Eternal life is found in Christ. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. See it? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Justification is to be had in Christ. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are... Say it. In Christ Jesus. It's not quite the same as who have received from Christ Jesus. Who are in Christ Jesus. 
Sanctification is solely to be had in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God that is at Corinth. To those sanctified, say it with me. In Christ Jesus, who are called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Sanctification isn't something he gives. It is something that is in Christ Jesus. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are new creations in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is, see it? In Christ. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Adoption. Sons and daughters of God. We receive it by being in Christ Jesus. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. It would wear you out, literally, if I went through the whole New Testament and just started, just do it sometimes on a, you have a good search online or something like that. Look up in Christ, with Christ, in him, in the Lord. Look up phrases like that and you just can't even write them all down. It isn't exclusive to Paul. John's gospel, John writes in a very different way. He's more inclined to picture realities than to describe them. Paul is the theologian. John is the poet. But he does exactly the same thing. John constantly points to our nature of union with Christ by by speaking of Jesus and sometimes quoting Jesus as being living bread that you eat, right? Right? Take in, digest. About him being living water, taken internally, quenching thirst. The disciples, they are stunned and they're offended and confused at Jesus' instruction about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Remember, they can't figure out, what are you talking about? Jesus is described as being eternal life in himself. He is the vine in which branches abide so that the life of the vine comes, is in the branch. He is the way, the truth, the life. Notice, he doesn't just bestow these things. It's what he is, is in, him, in his person. And we are in him. That's how you get eternal life. He is eternal life. And we are in him. Here's where I land. In this first point, it is no exaggeration to say, in spite of our lack of discussion on it in the church, it is no exaggeration to say that union with Christ is simply the definition of Christianity in the New Testament. It is the definition of Christianity in the New Testament. Its authors and our Lord himself... 
They have no other way of even thinking about the Christian life. It can't be explained in any other way without seriously reducing or distorting it. And that has huge implications for Christian discipleship. Are you still with me? I know this isn't like a, you know, Psalm 23 kind of sermon, but this is crucial that we get our brains wrapped right around this, tightly wrapped around this. I, I can't speak for every other church anywhere, but my desire is this church to be a church of understanding of these kinds of things. Point number two. I already mentioned this, and I want to do it more formally. Christianity is changed into another religion when the benefits accomplished by Christ are taken as external gifts. Remember forgiveness with this, with Ron? Taken as external gifts rather than participated in only when we are living our whole lives in Christ Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't suppose there's one Christian in a hundred who regularly thinks of his or her Christian life in the theological setting I've just described. Our, our oneness with Christ, it's not an easy concept to picture, and it's even more difficult to describe. So, no, I don't doubt very many of us wade through those deep waters all that often. That's not my point. My point is, the church has been affected by this misunderstanding, even when not considering it. And I think you can see it when you stop and look at it. That first example I gave... When Ron came up here, how do you picture receiving forgiveness from Jesus when you sin? And I think most of us picture Jesus, perhaps with a loving, patient smile on his face, standing somewhere near us, holding out a hand, offering me forgiveness. Do you see him giving it to you when you need it, and then you come back to him again when you need it more? Don't feel bad if you do. I think that's the common mental picture we've been raised with. Because this isn't very easy to talk about. It's hard to talk about it. But there are huge problems with this external gift picture of forgiveness. Sooner or later, you're going to wonder about that forgiveness. Perhaps you'll feel you've sinned too seriously. Or perhaps you're going to feel like you've sinned once too often. And what if Jesus gets impatient, kind of tired of extending forgiveness over and over and over for the same sin, and don't say you've never felt that? Or worse, you may start into some repeated sin with growing carelessness because you can just get your forgiveness from Jesus and then live the rest of your life on your own terms. After all, if you can get your forgiveness from Jesus externally, why can't you live the rest of your life externally from his presence as well? But what if, it's my prayer, what if week by week, day by day, hour by hour, 
moment by moment? What if we all began to think differently? What if we all came to see that we never knew just, we never do just receive forgiveness from Jesus like a divine Christmas present? What if we all came to see the whole goal of our lives was to live in Christ Jesus, to be so constantly and consciously in Christ, who is the one, by the way, who paid sin's price on the cross, fulfilled the law of God perfectly, who is the very person in whom redemption is accomplished and a brand new creation has begun in his resurrected body. What if I'm in there? In him. And what if my forgiveness doesn't rest on my feeling forgiven? And my attitude toward holiness is shaped by being united to the one who never ever sinned. And and what if we all really understood forgiveness never could be taken away... As we abide in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that go a long way to take the cheapness out of grace and the talk out of our faith? Wouldn't we start looking for deeper transformation in our hearts? I think we would. I know I haven't yet actually analyzed the nature of this union with Christ. I know we haven't yet considered its shape and how it happens. That's all still to come. But here's how I kind of want to wind down this teaching with a shocking biblical text. And the only reason we don't find it almost blasphemous is because we don't read it for what it really says. We kind of mentally edit what it says. So this is point number three. The scripture means for us to take oneness with Christ very literally... The text is 1 Corinthians 6, 13 to 29. Paul writes to the church. You get the whole context. There's sexual immorality in the body of Christ. And they aren't, they aren't uh, disciplining. And so Paul writes to this church that is proud of its tolerance and its open-mindedness. They probably said, you know, Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged, right? So we shouldn't be... And, and Paul knows what a distortion that is of Jesus' words, and, and he, he won't have it. So he's talking about the body, the physical body, and you kind of have to jump into the middle of the argument. 1 Corinthians 6, 13. The body is not meant... For sexual immorality. Just think about that sentence. Think about everything you see and watch on television. Think about every soap opera that makes it all so funny and cute with delightful music in the background and people saying witty, clever things. Think about every kind of sexual perversion and distortion. And here's, here's God's word. The bo- it's not meant for that. The body's not meant for that. Boy, I... I hadn't planned on this at all, but I hope, I hope we raise a whole bunch of, of, of you know, whatever teen to, to 30 kind of young people, men and women. And the next time you're with somebody who's all hands 
And I hope, there's a, I hope there's a whole bunch of Christian young people in this church that will be able to say, you know what? The body's not meant for this. It's not meant for this. And whoever you're with, if they don't accept that, ditch them. Or her. Just ditch them. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Read this next sentence with me. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Read that again. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Continue. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Now, just to be real clear, it is not the argument of this text that Jesus doesn't want us to commit sexual immorality, and I want to please Jesus so I will stay pure. That's all true. It has nothing to do with what Paul is saying in this text. Paul isn't saying... I hope I, hope I can make you get this. Paul isn't saying Jesus would never have sex with a prostitute, so you as a follower of Christ shouldn't either. It's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. He's saying something way more shocking than that. And here it is. Paul is saying, when you have sex with a prostitute, such is the nature of your union with Christ... That when you have sex with a prostitute, Jesus has sex with a prostitute. Do you think I'm making that up? Look at it again. I wouldn't dare say that. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? That's shocking to me. Isn't it to you? When you have sex with a prostitute, he says, your union with Christ is so actually real that you drag Jesus into that too. I I don't even know what to say to that. Like you just want to go, how can anybody do that? Jesus, the one we sing about, what a wonderful name it is. And then, when you go on that internet site tonight, and there's pornography all over the place, you bring Jesus into that. 
You bring Jesus into it. What a powerful name it is. And every time you curse and swear, you bring Jesus into it. Every time you cheat someone at work, you bring Jesus into it. Every time you lie on your income tax, you bring Jesus into it. Every time you fight with your wife, you bring Jesus into it. Doesn't it make you just want to kneel and say, oh God, how could I have missed this? How could I have missed this? This is, this is miles removed from just coming and saying, Jesus, could I just have some forgiveness? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're, you're, you're in Christ. You get nothing from Christ apart from being in Christ. And you drag Christ into what you do. He is in you. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? He says, never. And, and, and this has to do, church, this has to do with two very different approaches to holiness. If I resist, in this case, sexual impurity because Jesus says I shouldn't misbehave, I am trying my best to keep a rule, even a very good rule. But if I'm aware of my union with Christ, my motive for holiness becomes love for Jesus oriented. It's, it's a relational thing that's at stake. Not a rule issue. It's a Christ issue. My union with Christ, Paul says, is literally just as real as my physical union with that prostitute. That's how real my union with Christ is, Christ in me. Oh man, I'm running out of time. My, my closing point needs restatement. Union with Christ is, it's theological, it has depth, it's not a simple truth, but it is a truth with behavior shaping consequences. It changes the way we consider everything to do with Christ and those who profess faith in him. You see, the teachings of Jesus can be received externally. But there's nothing else in the whole Christian faith that works apart from being in Christ. In Christ. You can study this truth and you can live in its greatness for the rest of your life. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I got to quit. Let's pray.